Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hi, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Now, this week, we're going to be talking about um, something that's very interesting. It's uh, a pretty new aviation law, and it's really paved the way for tons of new aircraft designs. So first of all, we have to go back to a question I was asking myself a few weeks ago. It was, why are there so many aircraft from the 1970s and 80s that had four or three engines? So if you went to an airport during that time, most of the international, like the transatlantic and the transpacific flights would be either on 747s or DC-10s. And I was wondering, why was that? And why is it that we really don't see that nowadays? Because if you go to an airport now, the most common aircraft flying international, like transatlantic, transpacific, are things like the 787, the A330, or the 777. So why was there this massive shift from three-engined and four-engine planes to only two-engine planes? Well, we are going to be looking at a, um, a single law that caused this called ETOPS. Now, ETOPS stands for the Extended Range Twin Engine Operational Performance Standards. And they came into effect on February 1st, 1985. And they set the standards on how far a twin engine aircraft was allowed to fly. So I wanna make it clear though, this is just on twin engine aircraft. This doesn't apply to anything else like the 747, DC-10, A380, anything like that. This is just for twin engine aircraft. Um, so let's see, before the regulations were put in place, the law was that no twin engine aircraft could fly more than 60 minutes away from a diversion airport. The reason that the 60 minute law was in place is that it was written back when most planes still use propellers. So this was the late 1940s, early 1950s when this 60 minute law was passed. And it was thought that if one propeller failed, the other one would only be able to keep the plane airborne for about an hour. However, this really didn't catch up to the jet age when jet engines were far more reliable and far more powerful than a, uh, a propeller engine was. In fact, on average, for every one jet engine failure, there are 117 piston engine failures. Now, this law actually made sense for the time when you consider that it's a lot more common for a piston engine to just stop working in the middle of a flight than it is for a jet engine. Um, that said, though, piston engines are still extremely safe. So first of all, the chance that you're ever going to have a piston engine stop in mid-flight is about one in a million. So your chances of a jet engine stopping mid-flight are about one in 117 million. I'd say that's pretty, uh, pretty, I'd say that's pretty unlikely to happen. I don't know about you. Exactly. So Though one in a million and one in 117 million, those are two completely different numbers. Those are massively different. So it really shows that this law was written back at a time when they could not imagine how reliable and how safe these engines would come to be. Um, now, this law, it severely restricted the industry because obviously this meant that no twin engine plane could really fly transatlantic or transpacific, or they could but in the case of the transatlantic, they'd have to continuously fly up over eastern Canada, over Greenland, over Iceland, and down over northern Europe. And that is a very, very inefficient route. That's very inconvenient. 
especially if you want to go, uh, for example, from Florida to Portugal. That is nowhere near a straight line. And in that case, it is just easier to put a four engine plane on there. The problem with that is that a four engine plane is massively expensive to run because it requires so much fuel. And in order to do that, then they'd have to make these four engine planes massive in order to fill them up. So that is actually where you start to see big three engine planes like the 727 and the DC-10. They were built specifically so that they'd be small enough that they could be efficient, but big enough that they had an extra engine and therefore this law didn't apply to them. So they could actually fly pretty far away. Uh, let's see, where were we? Gotta, gotta, gotta love, gotta love. There is a law set in, there's an international law set in place so that you can't have two engine planes go go across certain areas because of safety reasons easy just slap another engine on it problem solved exactly that is literally the that is the easiest solution they had back in the time not legal to fly two engines well let's just put another engine in there somewhere and that that actually did work those aircraft are now fairly common like you can search up the dc-10 and you'll find easily a million pictures of these things they were absolutely everywhere back in the 70s and the 80s now, the first aircraft to, re to receive the ETOP certification was the Boeing 767. So that was in February of 1985. So that was the very first time that a plane was given special permission to fly farther than 60 minutes away. And this 767 was given a type rating of 120 minutes, meaning that it could fly up to two hours away from a diversion airport. So that really helped because that meant that these airlines could now fly these very small but very efficient aircraft on these routes. So that really picked up the um, uh, that really picked up the airline industry. Um, now, uh, just quickly to explain a little bit more about how ETOPS works, uh, Sergeant McConnell is just going to give us some more details on that. Okay, so ETOPS doesn't just regulate where an aircraft can fly, but it also dictates that um, airlines need to have a backup plan in case something goes wrong with an aircraft. An example of this is that Greenland and Iceland are both perfect diversion airports for transatlantic flights, but there's barely any infrastructure uh, in either of these places, meaning that the passengers would be essentially stranded. So in order to deal with that, airlines need to be able to organize another aircraft or another form of transportation. They need to fix the aircraft as soon as possible, and they need to feed and find accommodations for all of the other passengers. This process is harder than you may think, and sometimes it takes years of planning. Yeah, thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So as you said, ETOPS is a lot more than just how far an aircraft can fly. Now, that typically isn't a big problem in uh, transatlantic regions because, yes, Greenland and Iceland are fairly close. So it is fairly easy to get uh, mechanics out there. It's fairly easy to get another aircraft there to pick up other passengers. However, when you start going out the other way towards the Trans-Pacific, that is where things start, get, start to get really, really tricky because uh, between, say, for example, Eastern Asia and Western United States, there's only really Hawaii and Alaska. So if there was an aircraft that had an emergency, 
if they landed in Hawaii, they might be okay because that's a fairly populated area. But yeah, if they landed in Alaska, those passengers would be completely stranded. Uh, there was actually a case like that a few years ago uh, where an American 787 had a problem with its engine halfway through a flight from Shanghai to Chicago, and they had to go and land in Alaska. And that, that case actually went almost perfectly where American Airlines had one of their... Um, uh, one of their partner companies sent an aircraft immediately. The Coast Guard opened up their hangars for the passengers to stay in overnight. Uh, and then they instantly sent mechanics to fix the aircraft. So, uh, yeah, there is definitely a lot of planning that goes into these ETOP certifications. It's not just this plane has a super long range. We'll let it fly wherever it wants. You have to plan around a lot of contingencies. Um, nowadays, though, aircraft can receive some absolutely insane ETOPS ratings. So one we're talking about back in 1985, 120 minutes, so two hours away from a diversion airport, that's practically nothing compared to some of the ETOPS ratings we see today. So the Boeing 787, which is a direct descendant to the 767, has an ETOPS type rating of 330 minutes, which means it can fly five and a half hours away from a diversion airport, which is pretty far. Let's say from New York, give or take to LA. That's how far away this aircraft can fly from a diversion airport. And that is absolutely nuts. Yeah. Even crazier is the Airbus A350, which has an ETOPS rating of 370 minutes, meaning it can fly over six hours away from a diversion airport. This actually means you can uh, chart this out on a map if you guys want to do this. Um, if you chart this out on a map, you will see that it can fly essentially anywhere in the world except directly over the South Pole, which, again, is absolutely insane. It, there's pretty much nowhere that this plane can't fly. Well, there is, but it, it has the fuel to fly that far. Let's, let's leave it at that. Right. Now, even crazier, we've started seeing um, these really, really small, narrow-body aircraft starting to fly transatlantic flights. In fact, Air Canada even flies the tiny Airbus A319 transatlantic from St. John's, Newfoundland to London, England, which, again, is absolutely insane. When you think of transatlantic flying, you usually think of a massive aircraft carrying hundreds of people. No, this is practically a tiny commuter jet flying across the ocean. It is insane. And right. the point, if I may add here, the plane is literally 35 meters long. Like it is tiny. Yeah, this is one of those smaller planes you'd normally see flying domestic flights. And it's now flying not only international, but transatlantic. Absolutely insane. Even crazier is the Airbus A220. That's a practically brand new aircraft. And that is now, it doesn't yet fly transatlantic, but it has been proposed as it can fly super long range. And it's small enough that it can land on very short runways. Uh, Sergeant McConnell, I see you're giving a big theme, uh, thumbs up there. You want to elaborate a little more on the A220? Yeah, so actually my father flies the A220 and they're going to start doing like, um, well, it's been proposed that they're going to be doing like more tropical destinations. So for example, like Toronto, down to tropical areas, Halifax, to tropical areas, like it's a small plane, but it can actually fly really long distances and it can land on small runways, just like you stated before. 
so I want to clarify when you say um, tropical areas, you mean like uh, the Caribbean, Cuba, areas around yes. there, right? Yes, tons of Caribbean places have been suggested for this aircraft. Okay. Yeah, and see that that actually does solve a big problem in the aviation market. That's actually one that um, previously a lot of the giants couldn't wrap their heads around. They needed to build an aircraft that was small enough that uh, it would be economical to fly between two smaller airports, but still large enough that it could fly between very large distances. Uh, Airbus and Boeing got very close to this with the A318 and the uh, 737, but they didn't quite nail it down. So the Airbus A220 actually wasn't originally an Airbus. It was the Bombardier C-Series. Um, Bombardier, they went through some really complex legal stuff. They were getting sued by, uh, I think, the United States uh, and Boeing. So they sold off the C-Series program to Airbus. And under Airbus's uh, control, it has grown into a massive program, and it's looking like it's going to be massively profitable. Now, that is just about our time for tonight. We'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye, everyone. Bye.